Hello, and welcome to Emissaries of Profits, a production of Androids and Assets. On this show, we discuss the political and economic happenings in the Bajoran sector of the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, we talk about the conflicts, struggles, and diplomatic relations amongst the various inhabitants of the stars of the Deep Space Nine universe. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Marshall. Hello. And today we are astoundingly lucky to have a fellow Alberta podcaster, Karen, a format Hello. guardian and uh, also Alberta Advantage fame. Uh, so, yeah, welcome and thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, so as uh, Steve mentioned, I'm um, on a couple of Alberta podcasts, uh, Format Guardian, that's talking about Reboot, which is the 1990s Canadian anime show, or we see it as anime, we think it deserves that. And uh, The Alberta Advantage which is a uh, left political commentary podcast and a bit more serious. And so I'm one just one of uh, many panelists on that and uh, happy to be here as well, talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is, of course, Star Trek. So uh, what drew you to the show and was like, yes, I want to talk about Star Trek people like what are your star trek uh, bona fides your, your stcv oh, sure. pretty much a lifelong fan i was like a lot of people my age just like mid 30s i uh, grew up watching uh the next generation with my family kind of saturday night everyone would sit down i got more into the other series with the launch of the space channel which is I, I don't think it's around anymore i think it's like ctv sci-fi or whatever but it was very formative for me and they aired the original series every day. So I got to have a new episode of that till I ran out and then I just watched them again and again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Voyager was also on at the same time. I didn't get around to Deep Space Nine um, till a few years ago. And then I've been watching the new ones that they as they come out. And um, I've seen every episode and movie except season four of enterprise because i'm i'm still struggling through enterprise but it's a it's a, oh. it's a slog it gets better Se i know season four of enterprise is is like one of the best single episode <laughs> like seasons of star trek that's ever been okay produced. well that's that's encouraging 100%. it does it does seem to get like progressively better yes but it's still not want i don't want to watch it so it's very hard to like, watch something you don't want to so i, I feel you but it's I, all right so i think i've at least for just sheer exposure i'm qualified to talk about this stuff and think about it so it's all good that uh that is definitely that, more than qualified that's the only credential we have baptism by fire so. <laughs> just i've suffered through so many of these these things i keep keep coming back for some reason but we're talking about deep space nine today oh yeah uh, my my personal favorite of all of the the star trek franchise yeah it's pretty good so yeah so we have a fairly ambitious program because we're going to do three episodes we're going to cover the homecoming the circle and the siege a kind of nice three-part arc that denotes the goings-on on, on bezier at the start of season two so without further ado i'm gonna do my best to stammer through a very quick summary and i will almost assuredly miss critical things but if if key things are being missed, feel free to just jump in and be like, but don't forget this thing that's important. <laughs> oh, Steven, I gotcha. Come yeah. On. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here we go. Uh, there is just crisis, uh, political crisis pervades Bajor. The provisional gover government, which has been in absolute deadlock since the beginning of the show, uh, has only gotten worse with the loss of leadership of Kaiopaka. Everything's kind of devolving. There's a neat, uh, cure is just continuously racked with getting involved in ridiculous internecine struggles in the Bajoran government and military. And Kira is just constantly getting involved and it's detracting from her work. But there's hope because Kira gets smuggled uh, an earring that belongs to the charismatic Linalis, uh, a, a hero of the Bajoran resistance. The hero the of the Bajoran no, resistance yes. of whom we've yeah. never heard before. Yeah. The man who killed a Gaul. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which is pretty big. With deal. his bare hands. With his bare hands, yeah. Just uh, just so the real, real Superman of the Bajoran resistance. So they're they're gonna go get him and it's gonna fix everything because people, you know, there there's been no no individual for the Bajoran political cause to coalesce behind. And this has what has led to, I guess, the endemic problems. Uh, supposedly in the theory of the show. We can get more into this later. Uh, so they go but so they find out that he's being secretly held by the Cardassians who were supposed to have released all their Bajoran prisoners. 
uh, as a condition of the armistice, whatever. So they go in, they Kira goes black ops, you know, deep into enemy territory, and they get him out. Lee Nallis comes back. It's a hero's welcome. It's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, Lee Nallis is not very comfortable with his role, um, and he's kind of quickly sidelined. They give him, they, they traipse him in the ceremonial title of Navark, uh, which is a special, a special, unique, special boy title that's given to him. And, uh, he, and then uh, Kira's replaced on the station. So she has to go back down to the surface. Meanwhile, trouble is a brewing. That yeah. basically brings the end of Kira homecoming. Kira is fired at the end of homecoming. Kira, Kira is fired. Yeah, we gotta let's say that that's that's the big reveal is that she doesn't have her job anymore. Yeah. So. Like, what's gonna happen? The station's changed forever. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so then that brings us to the circle, uh, wherein the Federation starts getting the sense that things are not right on Bajor. Kira is sent packing. Uh, it's a very emotional time for her and Odo. And we begin to learn that there is the, the Alliance for Global Unity. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Or also known as the Circle. And they're a political group. They're Bajoran supremacist. They want to take over the government by violent means, not through the normal political discourse. And they are increasingly becoming armed and aggressive. So th- this kind of prompts a question where these arms are coming from. And there's an immediate suspicion that uh, a minister Yaro Essa is involved. Do you say Jaro or Yaro? Jaro, I'd say. Jaro. Jaro. Jaro, yeah. Jaro, yeah. <laughs> He's not Spanish. There's increasing suspicion that a minister Jaro uh, Essa. Italian. <laughs> no Italian. <laughs> Yeah, Minister Zaro Essa is behind it essentially, and wants to. Uh, you know, and he's and he is coincidentally a member of a certain minority religious sect. Oh, I don't think he's actually a member. I think he says he's going to be a member. Okay, Vedic. But so he anyway, he's he's in bed with Vedic Win. That's what matters. Okay, so, literally yeah. and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So things things are getting things are getting increasingly tense. Cisco is going to like the Bajoran military and being like, "Listen, you've got this problem. You have an you have you're on the cusp of an insurgency, uh, and I want to help you." And they're like, "You know, thanks for your, thanks for your offer of help, but we we got this. We know what's going on." And Cisco's like, "Oh, you're in on it. Okay, cool. Everything kind of boils over. On Bajor, Kira gets in trouble." Uh, she gets captured by the circle. Uh, they got to go in, get Kira out. They go in and have another commando raid at the end of that episode. Uh, and then at this point, it's the circle is out. They're moving against the Bajoran government and they're moving against Deep Space Nine itself. The end of the episode, the, the Federation is told to leave uh, Deep Space Nine. Because they're in, in danger and it's an internal matter. Yeah, yeah. They, they basically, the circle... The they got prime directived. <laughs> That's right. So, and that brings us to the final episode. Doesn't make episode. any sense whatsoever in this instance, but you know. Oh, I didn't have warp capability. I don't know. So. Bajorans have warp capability. Yeah, I know. So I thought it didn't apply, but <laughs> it applies when and if the plot requires it. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. So that brings us to the final episode, the siege, uh, which is uh, uh, the siege of the station, where uh, you know Chief replicates a bunch of Federation ration bars, and they go play. Commando sleepaway camp in the Jeffries tubes. Really, this really frustrated me because it's like, why didn't they just suck the oxygen out of the station? You know, like, <laughs> there's no reason that to uh, have an area you can't control on a space station. But anyway, yeah. So they, they go and they're all Hogan's heroes. They're hiding. They're jumping out of barrels. They're shooting at Bajorans, but they really try not to kill anybody. They're always on stun, and they're they handle this very politely. And they they eventually win the respect of the Bajoran commander of the occupation of the station and kind of convince the, the Bajoran military to intervene against the circle. And this is largely because they reveal <laughs> one subplot I haven't talked brought up prior to this, but it's very important, uh, is the fact that they finally find out where the circle's getting their weapons, and it's from the Kasari. And the Kasari are, are smuggling those weapons to the circle uh, via the Cardassians. And so when, when the Cardassian connection is exposed by Odo and the Deep Space Nine team, uh, the circle and the Alliance for Global Unity loses all legitimacy. And it's kind of wham, bam, everything's magically back to normal again. The just, end. It's just solved. <laughs> That's it. It's done. <laughs> and, and it's only re- one person's fault. Yeah. <laughs> this 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 organization with legions and with armies and that was besieging the capital. Yeah, if you just take the one guy away, everything else will fix itself. <laughs> yeah. Of course, in the process, uh, the Navar, the great Lee Nellis, tragically dies. Well, he did it saving Cisco, though. Yeah, so, like, he did. Oh, yeah, you got to go out on a high note. He so. died for Cisco. Yeah, that's true. The Cisco. So those are the episodes, in a nutshell. Did I miss anything major? Kira. Yeah. No, I don't think anything, like, super 
super pivotal. Of uh, Jake's date. I don't know. Oh, Jake's no, date. Jake's date. Yes, we got to talk <laughs> about Jake. That's pretty minor. Yeah, Jake did <laughs> but we go. We can talk about Jake it. did want to date a Dabo girl, and Cisco was like, It wasn't what? a Dabo girl. <laughs> no, no, it was a regular school girl this time. It was oh, just okay. a. All right. Just a friend of his. Right. Okay. Yeah. Gotta make I things think someone in his okay. class. No, you're right. Yeah, but he wants to go to the holodeck. Yeah, sorry. I, I am jumping ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Jake wants to date a girl from his school. Uh, and he wants to take her to Normal. the holodeck. And Cisco's like, what? The holodeck? No way. The yeah, holodeck they're, you're too young for that. Yeah. And I'm like, but there's kids on the Enterprise in the holodeck. It's the fun. I mean, yeah. You let him practice baseball in there. I don't know. Anyway. Who, who knows? The holodeck, the, the hollow suites, I guess, in, in the they're different. context. They are uh, very con- different. Con- continue to perplex uh, much more than they il- illuminate. So... That's just I just life. really, really like the idea that Quark like uses these holodeck, like rents them out for sack, which just seems like a bizarre. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like you can't just do that in your quarters. I right, guess no. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very stimulating. If I'm going to take a girl out, I've got to take her out somewhere fake. That's again to the ballpark or whatever. <laughs> no. Ah uh, yes, me me me, a sophisticate. Uh, I'm going definitely somewhere in the 20th century. <laughs> right, what we do. Mm-hmm. Or or I guess the early 21st century. You know, gotta. Who's the baseball guy? Uh, oh, yeah. the, the baseball card fellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen Buck yet Buck in our Bukai, reality. The London so. Kings. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure London's going to get its major league franchise any day now. Okay, Buck so Bukai's probably getting drafted like as we speak. <laughs> uh, what do we think about these episodes? I guess there's a lot. A lot happens to not have to have nothing of consequence happen <laughs> in the long run. But uh, I think this is a very interesting episode. So, where do people want to jump in? Do anyone have any thoughts? Any burning? impressions marshall is there something you want to so i mean i think a lot of this really it goes back to like the writers i don't know it's bordering on obsession uh that like electoral politics are ineffective uh, and you just should not ever under any circumstances take part in them because the only people who do are are power grubbing ne'er-do-wells except armed yeah. revol- except armed struggle is also bad yeah no i mean they don't offer an alternative it's more like politics <laughs> in general is icky like War is okay and baseball is okay, but politics is bad. I don't know. I always see it in Star Trek as like kind of like a necessary thing to grumble about because you have Odo and a few others saying like, oh, bureaucrats. But it's like, isn't all of Star Trek all the way down bureaucracy? Like there's there's literally no alternative. So you have like heroic captains and commanders saying like, oh, I wish we could just cut through all of this that I (laughs) imagine there's like, you know, like thousands and millions of people in the background like making the society function so that they can go on adventures there, there is like supremely ironic for a military officer to complain about bureaucracy and renting like <laughs> and because when when lean alice comes back here is like you know the provisional government's only full of like useless politicians who are only there for themselves i was like <laughs> like i guess but well, it's also, supposed to be relatable to the audience because they're like, yeah, I don't like those politicians either. Weren't they all former uh, resistance leaders, though? Yeah, well, they got soft. <laughs> well, I think what, when, they what, left the army and bam, that was it. They yeah. Stopped fighting. And I'll have, have cool jobs like uh, Kira, who, you know, maybe not have her job part of this episode. But. Yeah, I, yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, there is, so I think, yeah, again, we have this notion of like, yeah, like rough, tumble military types will get it done, but those politicians, oh man, what are we going to do? But the military types are the problem in this one as well. <laughs> well, so. yes, but the military the types are also the problem. So <laughs> go figure. Yeah, I, I, I'm really, I'm always really interested in like narratives about coup, you know, and how, and how it's perceived and how it's managed. Um, you know, particularly any time a television program in the United States talks about a coup, it's going to, for me, evoke a lot of feelings and a lot of ideas. Before um, we go sure. on about the coup, can we go back to, like, my my other one point about, um, like, the military yeah. and and bureaucracy? Because I really liked when uh, when Kira and Chief O'Brien were going to the labor camp to, to rescue Lee Nellis, and they get randomly stopped by, or randomly hailed by a, a Cardassian outpost. And the way that they bluffed through it was by saying that there was like a gull who was waiting on their delivery and and uh, sort of like the, the veiled threat of like, if you're the one that holds us up, you'll have somebody to answer to. And that just like cuts through all of the red tape 
immediately. But they're like, oh, yeah, 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 go ahead. Right. No more questions asked whatsoever. And it wasn't even a real, it wasn't even a real person. So just like the, the fear <laughs> that they have about that title and, and like how the Cardassians are built up to be like this, like very rigid power structure. Um, but they're completely identical. <laughs> I, I just really like, I like whenever they show the Cardassians and none of them actually care about the things that Cardassians are supposed to care about. Justice. Cardassians care about justice. <laughs> yeah, I guess. We never- yeah, I think that's, I think it's like the Worf problem where he's like the most Klingon and most Klingons are like, yeah, we we could like observe all these things if we wanted to. But so it's just like Golducat and, um, uh, Garrick are the only ones who are like really into like the operas and the like government structures and like no- nobody else is like they're just like you know paperclip pushers not <laughs> really like they don't really care about their jobs no. so. what's the book that Garrick likes it's like the unending sacrifice or something we're getting ahead of ourselves but yes Garrick suddenly not here but you know he has to GTFO when uh, when the Bajorans <laughs> come to town I think he he wants to get out of there. Makes yeah. sense. Because of this episode being the way it is and being largely preoccupied with a coup and it being a television show that is produced in the United States uh, about a coup, it, it for me brings up a lot of stuff. I got a lot of feelings about coup, the United States and coups as they are one of the major instigators of them around the globe. Um, and I think for us recording this podcast now, uh, we're earlier this year, a, a pretty disastrous coup attempt just went down in Venezuela with the whole Silver Corp incident where a bunch of American mercenaries uh, went into Venezuela to tr- attempt to kill Maduro and were immediately caught. <laughs> like just, just, just didn't. Well, come on, Stephen. They wouldn't have been mercenaries. They had their passport with them. <laughs> right. Anyway, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, who knows the truth of these things? It's, uh, there's always a layer of obfuscation, but they were certainly not there on the, at the behest of uh, Venezuela's government. Instead of the relative oh, certainty. No. Um, yes, these, these, these gentlemen were there, uh, I think. <clears throat> I think presumably on, on behalf of hoping to reap some sort of reward from uh, from Guaido at some point. But anyway, that's a digression. Coups are a very real thing in our world and a very real thing in, in the politics of, of the United States. And I think we talk about the Federation as a stand-in for America in a lot of in a lot of functions and you know, as having like an America type foreign policy with like a system of alliances and a system of economic incentives. It seems very unlikely that the Federation is not behind this coup. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> In general, I think. no, it's I think it's supposed to be internal to Bejor. I mean, of course, there's other actors that are revealed, but it's supposed to just at least be in one planet, which is sort of analogous to one country, which you have historical examples as as well. So mm-hmm. like countries divided and going to wars. And one thing they do seem to get right, even though it's again, we'll, we'll probably get into how it's uh, presented a little bit less seriously than some uh, other shows and movies where it's like super serious and even if it's still like just action based and uh, not very realistic but they do have to have the military on side for this to work so that's like a very strong thread that they emphasize throughout so and that's kind of as as we approach the end we'll see what happens but yeah so I, I did appreciate that, that the, the structure is sound so mm-hmm. how these things go down and, yeah. and they've got the back scratching, the Vedic, who's like, well, if you make me Kai, then then I'll support you. He's like, oh, yeah. sure, you know, like this. this yeah, the favors. Thing. You got it. Yeah. 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 I, I'll yeah. offer uh, spiritual legitimacy to your coup if you help my me and my bid to become Kai. Yeah. All that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's got, that's got some shades of America for sure and some of their overseas adventures of just making alliances with certain religious figures to say like we're when we're in charge you'll have the theor- theocracy that you want so <laughs> the coup it stalls though like they uh, they don't ever really pull it off which kind of like it was it seemed like it was going really fast and then it just they just sort of like stopped doing anything toward the coup yeah i noticed that with a number of the plots here where it's just like kind of ramping up to like we, we mentioned lee nollis and he's kind of the focus of the first of the three episodes and then as it goes on, he just gets kind of lost in the background of like, wait, I thought that was the whole reason that we're doing all of this as he's the catalyst. But the coup kind of comes and goes in a similar way where it's, it isn't really successfully pulled off. But then there's also not really any consequences for it failing, which again, in real life, usually when it's not successful, you still hear about 
kind of the fallout of yeah. it, whether it's the ones who attempted it or the response of uh, you know the people who made it through and didn't get toppled over or whatever so. the, the general who was on on deep space nine who seemed i thought he was the general of of all of bajor so uh continuing the tradition of of highly ranked officers doing jobs that are really not the jobs that they should be doing uh yeah he led an attack on deep space nine uh which just seemed a little bit out of place for the head of the entire Bishoran military. Yeah, well, that's something that you can get an underling to do. You have a like special many... ops team that does that sort of thing, but yeah, at least like yeah. put it, there's, there's colonels and like and other types of generals, you know, between yeah. you in that process, but uh but he makes a reference that like, well, now I have to go back to the council of ministers and they're probably going to ask me to resign. Uh so we're like, okay, well he loses his job. And presumably Minister Jaro loses his job. But but even when uh, the evidence is produced in the Council of Ministers uh, and Kira, like, hands it over, I, for some reason, I was like, there must be, like, another 10 minutes in this episode or something. Because it really felt like when when Vedic uh, Wynn took the, the console and was like, yes, we will do a thorough investigation of this. I was sure that was going to be, like, the start of a cover-up attempt. Oh, yeah, and that'd then, be more interesting, honestly. would be like, nope, there's nothing here. It's all a Federation lie. Uh, but no, it was just like a, sort of a fade out on Kira's face of like, haha, we did it. We accept this <laughs> at face value. That's yeah. it? Like, yeah, seems trustworthy. <laughs> uh, and then, Even and though then, I'm, wasn't she the villain in the yeah. season finale? Like, how do they just trust her now? <laughs> and and she was part of the coup attempt as well. I was for sure like, yeah. okay, you have to be discredited now. You've you've bombed a school. You've attempted a coup. <laughs> you tried to nope. kill Burial. It's fine. Yeah. Nah. I don't know. <laughs> Poor Burial. Again, he's kind of just floating through the episode. I mean, I know they're setting up stuff for later, but you, I don't think they knew what they were setting up for later here because it's just <laughs> just a bunch of stuff. No, I, yeah. So there's a tendency to change horses midstream. Like they're kind of going one direction. You know, let's just hop on something else here um yep. which, and these three episodes i think are really like the lean Alice is a great example of that like you know let's um i think there is there is this thing about like lean Alice has his own internal struggle right with yeah it is carried through it just does, does takes a back seat yeah. in in a way that you don't expect it to be yeah for, for people who didn't see the episode uh, the reason that there's this imposter syndrome that lean Alice has is because basically he killed the gall in accident like he basically stumbled into it and the guy was like getting out of a lake after having a bath and kind of more or less killed him accidentally. Yeah, um, I mean like he yeah. fell down a hill and they, they came face to face and he happened to be holding his gun still. So it's yeah. like, so it's, so he, and then it becomes like this major legend that really gets blown out of proportion. Uh, and, and so he, yeah, he feels really bad about that. But I, I did feel like in the first episode that they, they're not very sensitive to how he might possibly react because it can't be that surprising that it's like oh you're you're rescued from the labor camp and now you're a hero and now you're a world leader and i'm like do, do you think any person realistically wants to hear that in like the span of like a minute <laughs> like it's it's not and very spend like a decade in that labor camp yeah he did wasn't yeah. it a lot like it was, like it was before the end of the war like he was there for a large yeah, yeah. conflict so he yeah he didn't even see like all this just the sheer like info dump and then what he's expected to do i feel like this might be kind of a dated aspect of the show like i even for tv shows i think there's more awareness of like like post-traumatic stress and mm. and things that you wouldn't just expect someone to come out of that situation and the next day be like yeah like a leader that people look up to that would be like some turnaround or intervention but they, maybe they don't have a ship's counselor here so that could be <laughs> that's a problem even, even the later seasons deep space nine gets better at dealing with that oh exactly there's some some good ones about nog and um esri dax that are that they're processing trauma so yeah, yeah. yeah. i i, I but, feel that a big part of this is a bit being a nod to nelson mandela uh, yeah, yeah. I think who who is a very big deal in, in 1993. You know, <laughs> sure, yeah. Was riding yeah, high, you got to think you know? about yeah. 1993. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. so, yeah, for me, I think there was a lot of that that nod to Nelson Mandela, which again, which again reflects like a broader historiographical trend in this show, which is, I think mm -hmm. is kind of defaulting to the historiography of great man history, the concept that history is moved forward by individuals who are themselves exceptional and cause things to happen. But on the other hand, I will give the episode credit because it, it sets it up that way, and then in the end, it kind of 
defaults. It's not all it's cracked up to be with this great person. So uh, that I think that's also interesting. It has a play with this concept. And I, I, won't, I won't go so far as to say it's overtly critical of the concept, but uh, I will say it's engaged with the question, which is interesting. I didn't ever really pick up on that because I thought once Lee Nollis like, came to accept that he was a great man, he could do great things. Yeah, exactly. But then he dies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, well, and then and then he sacrifices himself, like in another heroic. Well, to save thing. another great man. Well, yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> uh, but like once he was like, oh yeah, I have to be a hero, and they went to Cisco's quarter or uh, like office and confronted the general. The conflict was over immediately. Like all it took was Lee Nollis saying, "Okay, I'll do it," and that was enough. Yeah, I mean, there's like some pretty basic like, oh, if he just had a little more self-confidence, but they they do tie it up nicely with the scene at the very end of the three episodes with um, Cisco and O'Brien talking about kind of, um, you know, myths and tall tales, which is weird for O'Brien to doubt that because he does that in quite a few other episodes, (laughs) like the, the Irish kind of like myth storytelling aspect. But uh, I guess they had to have someone say it. But uh, or it kind of questioned that there is a dissonance between the person and like what is told about him. But yeah, while he's alive, it's kind of like, oh, you're becoming the one. But it's like, no, he's just not. They can't keep him around. So yeah, yeah, for sure. sure. Bashir would have been a perfect person to play that role, though, of like, that's not the lean Alice I knew. (laughs) Oh, exactly. (laughs) Just like clueless most of the time. (laughs) That would be much better. Yeah, without being putting Bashir on screen. (laughs) uh. Apparently they don't. And speaking of characters who get like much, much better. But uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny knowing what happens with him later. But uh, spoilers. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, when he's a sex pest, it's no fun. Yeah. Just, just awful. His first just season awful. is real bad. Well, he's not a lot better in the second season. <laughs> yeah, so he hasn't had enough screen time to do anything yet. <laughs> there was a throwaway line uh, in uh, uh, the second episode, the very beginning, in like the, the teaser uh, with Cisco and Minister Jaro in Cisco's office. And, uh, Cisco says, like, there's a warm... For a minute there, I thought there was a warm wind blowing in from an island, from, from somewhere. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's the phrase that anyone's used outside of the show. <laughs> I was like, I've never heard that before. Is that is that a thing I should have heard? The way he says it, and it is sort of like, he's like, everyone will understand this phrase. I was like, is that seriously? Everyone loves a fictional idiom. I think we can all agree. <laughs> Well, it's so convincing with Barry Brooks. It's just like, yeah, that sounds really real. He is very convincing. He he delivers. Sometimes he delivers a line. It's just like, just like, ooh, goosebumps. Just like, you know. Yeah, like uh, chef's kiss. Yeah, yeah. Yes, a warm wind blowing in from Minicoy. Uh, Minicoy, yes. Minicoy. We all know Minicoy. I don't know where it's at. I looked at Minicoy, and it's a small island nation in, like, the South Pacific. Oh, and so he tells this story about like, oh, the ambassador from Minicoy. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's what like the baseball on? player. It hasn't been invented yet <laughs> in, in, the in 20, our world. So in the 22nd century, Minicoy is a major global power. <laughs> <laughs> they have an ambassador to the Federation. It's <laughs> nice. But ultimately, we see uh, a big part of this is about the roles of militia play i think in in political in driving political change and in conflict so the notion that uh, and this is i think particularly relevant in light of the dissolution of yugoslavia uh, which is contemporary to this and that how a lot of what's happening there is there are armies at play but there are also just a lot of militias like ethnic and religious like sectarian militias are being formed uh, like and they're doing a lot of the they're perpetrating the lion's share of the uh, atrocities um, at this point and the military is sort of like just an inert factor uh, and so I think that's interesting that they kind of talked about like this the role that paramilitaries play in society and then and then in I think what's in light of what happens in Syria maybe the alternate iron the ultimate irony uh, that you know a great harm is done it is it is a great moral wrong for a group for a nation state to arm a group of paramilitaries in a conflict riddled country um, which is yeah, generally not good. Yeah. So in 1993, there was a recognition that going to a place that was having internal conflict and dumping guns on it was objectively morally wrong. Uh, oh. And then to fast well, forward there's, 20 there's years There's a great later. original series episode where they're just like, 
well, we have to give as many guns to them as the Klingons did to the other side. Or like, oh, I, don't, yes. no, I don't think that's really <laughs> great. So that's, again, maybe this is a good update from that. Just like we've recognized that it's wrong. <laughs> Federation policy has evolved. Yeah, Cold War is over. <laughs> gotta yes. gotta get with the times. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, I think one thing you've seen in the post-Cold War era, immediately there was a great sense of, you know, they're, they're America was feeling magnanimous in their victory, you know, and they were, they were like, we're, we're going to do it better. We're going to be different. <laughs> uh, did not last, apparently. <laughs> that was all a psyop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could probably get into how Deep Space Nine presents uh, kind of a notion of the people in a way that oh, yeah. you wouldn't have. Yeah, I, could, I can just get on, on on that. If you've got any points for that, I can start. Yeah, So shoot. Right. Okay. I find it interesting in Deep Space Nine that there's a more of a notion of uh, the people than previous Star Trek episodes where they just, by default, visit different planets. They don't stick around. So the premise of Deep Space Nine is that you can watch a planet, which is Bajor, developed and have, you know, internal conflicts that are resolved and ebb and flow. But it still has this constraints of a 1990s TV show. So you have the people represented through just a few characters who, you know, maybe you can get back the actors for future episodes or maybe not. So that's like the fate of Lee Nellis that we talked about is because they literally didn't know if they could get the guy back. So he had to you know, meet his, his untimely demise. But um, yeah, but getting back to the people. So that's kind of interesting how they talk about Lee as like someone that the people will support because he's a legend or that they need unification, but that can only th- come through a, individual and not like ideology because the uh the circle is like just not a good ideology and it turns out it's not even a real group or ideology so it's not not much to base like a coup or a revolution or a government on yeah so it's kind of interesting ideas brought up but not really like coming together in a satisfying way at least not yet no it, like you don't you don't ever really see the population it's not like they go on like a talk radio show and and debate any of these things where it's like people call in and you're like oh this is you know whoever from the southern islands let's hear what they've got to say about this i i think the wormhole tariff will drive down investment and i need that as a small businessman on Beijing. how is my, oh my corner goodness. store supposed to sell Bulgarian sun ships if we don't if there's a tariff on the wormhole so this uh, is the real politics right but <laughs> you don't get to hear that yet i mean i think you could do it in a creative way with limited cast and like inferring that there's like different opinions and struggles and they they get a bit closer to that over the course of the series but here it it just seems like in this three episodes they are just like testing a lot of things that are going to come together a lot better later where you do see by the the like run of episodes that concludes the whole series that it does seem like that there's like planet-wide stakes arising but here it, it seems like the same group of 20 people not really representing anyone else the mythic concept of like this whole the, the holistic people is maybe the most abused concept in politics because uh, you know it's kind of used from everything from like you know like monarchical paternalism down to like you know sort of like this like sort of magical hand waving at democracy you know like well the people if forty two percent of people then it's the will of the people and it's magically then you know we we did the numbers and transmuted um, you know this this into the will of the cosmic the ordained will of the people you Wasn't know what I'm saying money just the other day that like said. If you have something like three percent of the population come out in a revolution, then and that's that's the magic number. You need at least yeah. 10% to be successful, and that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, you don't you don't need everyone. That's kind of like a flaw that I see in kind of contemporary politics, or at least the last like twenty or thirty years. Is that like, well, if we all just agree, and I'm like, well, no one ever will agree. <laughs> so no. that's like an unrealistic foundation. It's like, and even like I don't know. I guess like more kind of specific issues like oh if we're all if we're all like vegan or something i'm like well again you're just starting with people's diets you're not gonna get everyone to agree but you you've got enough people to agree to 
to like make a difference or make a stand and that that might be like three percent so mm. um but in in this episode for sure these these three episodes we have that kind of like that people are just like these dumb guppy fish and they're just like oh well like, here's a new guy and we're all ha- happy with this just <laughs> like, <laughs> like a very uncharitable like it's it's good to acknowledge that the population exists but then it's like okay they're just they're just all like brainless i guess and have no agency so that's a really big uh factor yeah well i'm really glad you brought this concept of people because i think it it folds back into into the notion of coup and i think what marshall's talking about like on that planet money they're talking about like these critical masses of people and that all is contingent on the work of a guy called gene sharp uh, who's a, a political scientist and he specialized in like uh peaceful political change one of his books is actually called anti-coup which is, is like like it's a manual he wrote for governments to inoculate themselves against coups, um, and, and he's and he's he's really famous because he was the major trainer and leader uh, for like supporting the U.S. State Department in its uh, work with Otpor in mm-hmm. <laughs> in the former Yugoslavia in Serbia, right? Uh, so I, I don't know if uh, certainly Marshall and I got this. I don't know, but I think a lot of people who go through political science first year political science programs in North America hear about Otpor. Have you heard about Otpor? Did this come up for you? I don't, I don't know. I went to art school, so that's fair. <laughs> okay, fair enough. What, yeah. What yeah. I heard about was pretty uh pretty Otpor with the black fist. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Oh yeah. I yes, I will. I, I have educated myself. Yeah. So, so Otpor, yes. yeah, Otpor really popularized itself. Yeah. And so uh, but Otpor is really really shoved down, you know, every all at least political science uh, students throats as like this really really great example of how you do political change nonviolently. And that that really stems out of Gene Sharp's whole thing. And, yeah, and James Sharp's thing is like, yeah, you could have like a passive resistance to shut down the government, and then to and then to kind of basically yeah hold hold the economy hostage, uh, more or less, and uh, and then th- that was how you could then instigate political change. Uh, and this has really been then this and Gene Sharp, you know, I think he was a guy who was very focused on peace and wanting to reduce violence and fighting and warfare, but really kind of in a certain way still wanted war. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's like, like, I want a weapon that doesn't involve. Sh- I want a weapon that's not a gun. I want a social weapon. You know, he's a complex figure, but I think really he does end up writing the playbook for U.S. regime change policy and for coup instigation and all these things the world over. Um, so did he work actively with them, like to do that, or did they read his research and say, "Oh, we could apply that"? No, he he definitely he definitely worked a lot with like the Albert the, the Albert Einstein Institution, which is like his his group, because um, he was originally with CIA at Harvard, uh, mm-hmm. which is not not the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, I, I forget the name. It's like something academic. Central Academic Institution, I think, at Harvard, uh, which the, the acronym CIA is not lost. Uh, but anyway, it was. Um, yeah, like, real yeah. subtle guys. But yeah, it, it received, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, CIA at Harvard. CIA at Harvard definitely received a lot of State Department funding. You know, it's part of it's part of that nexus of like not for profits and you and U.S. foreign policy wonks through like Ivy Leagues. You know, the creation of all these think tanks that turn out policy papers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, look, maybe you do, you do, or you don't know how it works, but it's there. Um, and Gene Sharp was definitely part of that. And Gene Sharp was definitely. Um, a very publicly associated with Otpor and hmm. and the State Department's like th- uh, NGO efforts in Serbia bef- at the end of and after the war. So, are, like, are you saying that like the Be- the Bejorans should have learned from Gene Sharp and had like a nonviolent revolution? Or, I, I mean, to some extent, Otpor Otpor has not yet really happened, right? Like all, all this stuff I'm talking about, and to some extent, is yet to come, right? On Bejor. Yeah is yet to come in Serbia, like is yet to come in the Yugoslav war. Um, so I'm talking about, I'm uh, right. Okay, I'm okay, talking about events that actually haven't in the timeline, in the history around, around the, uh, the television program, uh, events that have not yet happened. <laughs> like, I right. guess, I guess so. the revolution was nonviolent, but it also seemed like not very much of a revolution either. Like it seemed like somebody who was already in power was just solidifying power. Yeah, yeah. Well, so they like had to a, call it a coup. Also, I was sort of like, is it a coup though? If he's like in government and it's yeah, still the same well, government. No, it like, it can be a coup if you're yeah, if oh. you're just like uh, factions pay, playing off one another. Yeah, yeah. Ed- okay. education minister becomes president is still a coup if it's not, you know. But I, I mean, mean, they haven't had a president, right? So yeah, he's just sort enough. of like, we're done with the provisional government. I am the government now. 
Well, yeah, there's a line where they say, um, you know, they can't even call themselves a government because they're a provincial government. And I'm like, well, that's just kind of squinting hairs. It's a lot of deeper meaning to that. (laughs) But um, sure, that's like, that's what you call yourself when you want like some help from like the Federation. Yeah. Yeah. But it is like an intermediary. Yeah. But for all the talk of the will of the people, the people have very little agency in this like there's no mm-hmm. point where like people come out to demonstrate for the circle or against it right like there's no <laughs> it's just there's there's the there's the military and the military is not fighting and then the military decides it wants to fight and then it is fighting eh. yeah the only uh, kind of lens you see the circle through other than as this political football is uh, the subplot with jake uh, dating his schoolmate because it's just like oh well they the parents who are Bajoran are not going to let their daughter date him because he's human and it's like okay that's uh just like the usual star trek kind of shades of discrimination and misunderstanding but that's the only hint that this group is having regular people like the parents uh fearful of repercussions if if the situation goes on, if they're too friendly with outsiders, because mm. the circle is supposed to be separatist or xenophobic or whatever, but it's it's not really solidified what it is. And then, like I said, it doesn't turn out to be anything. So the the school bombing uh, in in the, the end of season one, a whole bunch of Bajoran families came out and were very angry, and they wouldn't go to the school, and they took they pulled their kids from the school, and they were very upset. Uh, yeah. Which is you're like, okay, so there's a group of of Bajorans there who are upset and and that is, you see them you see them angry there. But then part of the reason why the Federation, like those officers in the siege, stay behind is because one of them is like engaged to a Bajoran person and another one's kids is friends with a Bajoran kid <laughs> and they have all these ties and interrelationships with the Bajorans. And then when Lee Nallis is like, Hey, people, we should help our friends, the, the Federation, they're like, oh, yeah, they're our friends. And, <laughs> and we're like, happened okay, here? we're really dumb. That's all they've really learned. But, yeah, I was impressed that they they had, like, you know, a fiancé after a year. I mean, it's, okay, I guess sometimes things move fast, but that's... <laughs> we didn't know that she's also pregnant, so... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> the Federation exactly. is beyond such things. Uh, <laughs> the shotgun Pregnancy or shotgun, shotgun weddings. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would, I would hope that people would. I hope, would hope that people would have the women would have the right to choose with their bodies at, at this point of technology. Oh God! I mean, they, they do that's, now. That's my, that's my hope. Anyway. That's my hope. Um, I don't know. I mean, some of those Bajorans are really uh, like conservative <laughs> religious figures. So, well, that. Oh. That, I mean, well, this is uh, this is where I think we have an interesting intersection with our circumstance. Karen, you mentioned this offline before we were talking and you kind of talked about how like you know you you brought up wexit and at first i was like that's weird oh. but now i'm like that's yeah which the, alberta the most the most serious yeah. political yeah the most serious political time. movement yeah for those of you that aren't in alberta there's a move for alberta to separate from canada um we use move very generously yeah yeah uh, i mean honestly we had the same thing in cape breton and then never happened so i don't know what people are talking about well, yeah well, i think in the bejoran context you have this this situation where you have a lot of loud Bajoran supremacists, but it's not actually clear if they have political support. And I think this happens a lot in politics where you can have a very vocal minority, especially if they got uh, a bunch of money and, and influence and, and column space and column inches given to them. Uh, they, it might start to really seem, you might really start to think that there is a popular will for something, despite the fact that it being an extremely minority view. And I think we get that a lot in Alberta. Oh, for sure. And I'm not to drill down too much into Alberta politics, but it seems like Wexit is the like extreme circumstance that makes the fair deal panel, which is another reference of, of like we're not getting our fair share from being part of Canada or like the federal government. Uh, that seems more reasonable versus like, oh, we're just going to you know, cut ties with Canada. It's like, OK, well, what if we just negotiate a little bit? So that's that seems like the current strategy. But um, how that relates to the episode i'm not sure because it just like in tv shows you get kind of like extremes and then as as we said it's kind of wrapped up quickly so you don't you don't get the long-term scaling back of like 
okay, these are the extreme demands, but these are the more reasonable ones that if, if we presented those first, you wouldn't like them either. But the political operation and the, and the psy, the psyop, again, we come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I guess you sort of, you sort of, they, I thought they were sort of building up to it, that, that it was like the circle was this dangerous group, but Minister Jaro was, he was reasonable. So like, <laughs> you know, if, if you just give power to Minister Jaro, then he'll be able to sort out all of these things with the circle. But then quite quickly it was like, no, he's just the head of the circle. It's fine. Yeah, I think we, we just put that middle point in because we're thinking about it, but I don't think it's it's not clear in the episode that that was the plan. So yeah. Well, again, again, we return to the, 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 the very, very frustrating uh, barrier that that we always run into doing this show, which is it's a, t- it's a television program. <laughs> <laughs> damn exactly. It, it's a goddamn TV show. Uh, and <laughs> there's just some things we'll never resolve. I only really brought up Wax because I think it fixes the problem of like, the Bajoran people aren't stupid. They, they've always had that belief. It's just that there was a distortion in our perception of them by, uh, by like, by again, this vocal minority and, so and a, like political the, agen- like a political agenda. All of interest. the Bajoran people aren't stupid or like there's <laughs> some Bajoran people that are stupid. I mean, some of them are going to be. <laughs> Statistically. Just like some of everyone are going to be. Because so. Wexit is pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, we don't like need to a, we don't need to flaw. As in Alberta, so on Bejor. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I do want to talk briefly about the rules of acquisition, because there were there were oh, two yes. rules of acquisition that were, were mentioned over the course of these three episodes. First one uh that we heard about was in uh the very beginning of the first episode, uh when Odo and uh and Quark are talking and Quark has provided some uh, intelligence on criminal activities and, and Odo is very confused at what's going on and, and Quark is like, no, 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 we're just friends now. Like, you and I are friends and I will help you out. Uh, and we don't know how, you know, sincere this is yet, but... And then Rom, Quark's brother, is very confused and and Quark says, it's the 76th rule of acquisition. Every once in a while, declare peace. It confuses the hell out of your enemies. Uh, so that was that's a rule of acquisition. I'm not sure exactly what they were acquiring, but most rules of acquisition uh, don't actually have anything to do with buying things. So, uh, and then toward the end of the third episode, uh, Bashir makes a passing reference about Quark's mom. Uh, but not even like about his mom. He's just like, I understand that you're a liar ever since the day you were born. Uh, and, and Quark comes running toward him and is like, rule of acquisition number 31. Never make fun of a Ferengi's mother. I get like again, like <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it's on a, cool. a good rule to follow. Just don't, just don't make fun of people. That's <laughs> <laughs> all the rules. Be nice. <laughs> it's probably not going to help your business, your business arrangement if you go in there and make fun of someone's mother. So no, yeah. I'm, I'm, no. I'm just sure though that there, and and when we find it, I'll I'll try my best to remember. There's got to be another rule that like directly contradicts this rule. <laughs> <laughs> that you should make fun of people's yeah. mothers. Like, <laughs> yeah, ridicule and humiliation are powerful tools or something. You know? yeah, so <laughs> yeah, something like the that. counter. There's, there's also oh, exactly. one about, like making money off of your family, right? Where it's like, like I don't know. So, so, yeah, sell your family. Yeah. Well, we'll find. We'll find. So, it. I'm, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get into the theological uh, theological implications of the rules of acquisition more and more as they unfold. But I think for these two, they're not overly strong. These aren't. Uh, no, these are these are less insightful. So, right. so, yeah, moral moral lessons. Yeah, so we'll cue the music. <laughs> right. So, so a couple of notes that I found throwing uh, going through my longer notes. Uh, so, like, I I like in the middle episode where it seems that. 
Kira is going to have some sort of like, journey of her own that maybe parallels Lena Alice. She just has like a sexy dream with like uh, with Vedic Perhile instead. And I guess that's like a setup for their relationship. Again, I, I just wrote Vedic with benefits, but I don't <laughs> That is the episode name helpful, now. But that's that's as far as it goes. And then she gets kidnapped, and that, and then she, the, in the third episode, she and Dax just get the spaceship and have some some like cute cockpit scenes. But as a, it's kind of like again an, another aspect of these three episodes where they're just kind of truncating, like oh here's some some self reflection or slowing it down, and it's like oh it's just a weird scene that you don't understand, and then. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't matter either. So it doesn't seem to add anything at all. I, well, I, yeah, and it's like Kira's first experience with an orb, so it's it's played very uh, purposefully that that it's a big deal to her. And then yeah, it's just like some confusing horniness. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's it. But, you, um, you see the but, face of God, and he tells you you're gonna fuck a guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're like, uh, well, at least they're they're not like prudish. But <laughs> <laughs> thank. Thank you, prophets. But <laughs> it uh, it was but, interesting as well because then in the third episode, when uh, when Kira and Dax end up at Vedic Barile's monastery, uh, Vedic Barile is like, "Everyone saw your plane crash, and so I sent out searchers because I knew it was you." I guess, uh, <laughs> even though you're in an old ship, and it <laughs> yeah, could have been anyone could have been but... anybody crashing that ship, but I just knew. So I don't know, unless he had also looked at the orb and saw the sexy dream and was like, it's like, oh, I recognize put it, putting it together. Yeah. Burrell looks at that orb like some people watch TV. So <laughs> we're, we're going to see him a little later glazed in this over. season. Yeah. He's a, a little, he's just, he's a little funny, looking. but uh, it's also funny because just like how you kind of, I think you were talking in the previous episode about how, Kira is revealed to, if not a fundamentalist, then kind of a deep, deeper believer than she has presented in in the the show up to that point. Mm-hmm. And then it's yeah, it, it makes sense that she would go in this direction for this episode, but they just kind of botched it as far as I could see. Yeah, you don't as a viewer, you don't really take anything away from it that isn't just like setting up another relationship so and if anything like wouldn't she be a little bit antagonistic toward vedic burial because he's yeah the i wouldn't think that like modern bajoran religion and and she's like no conservative they, they just seem to agree not to talk about that in the future because <laughs> <laughs> it would just interfere with the yeah the like conjugal visits and so on right <laughs> yeah just so we don't fast. have time to argue about this just take your clothes about off theology yeah who knows? But again, the, the Bajoran religion is analogous to some religions, but it's just generally very confusing. So Very, very confusing. Yes. <laughs> Mostly in that the prophets are somewhat real and uh, it's like a, a feature of religions on Earth. It's, it's a, like a really essential aspect that you shouldn't have to prove that there's some kind of entity you're being that you believe in but in in deep space i was like no they're they're there <laughs> we just call them something else <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky you can actually go and spend time with them yeah if you're if you're like the uh if you're the cisco but yeah that's what i that's what i came up with with my notes um meals ready to eat it's a great youtube channel i think <laughs> chief o'brien would like it <laughs> he just samples different military grade rations and, and he totally yeah. didn't have to replicate that he could have like got them like something that tasted good but he was deliberately like he's like no i'm just really into this youtube channel yeah. so i'm gonna i'm gonna pack as much as i can into this little granola bar type thing yeah nostalgic for his days at the front huh. yeah the, the ration d bar feelings on the arc three episode arc yeah i mean Watching it again, I definitely think it was enjoyable, well done. Like we were just talking about some of the comic relief, and it, it really works as like the characters, like the the scene where they think that Kira is leaving and she's trying to pack and come. Everyone comes to visit her. I think yes. that was just just a really nice, like fun scene, and it really does emphasize that it would be difficult for these people not to be around one another, which you don't get, especially after one season of a TV show that that the cast works together well enough and the dialogue is sharp enough that you can get that. The Yeah, the political aspects or the themes are a, a little 
confusing or convoluted, but they're trying some things out. And you can definitely see that the writers and producers are generating ideas for, you know, what if we had like, you know, a season long thing or what if we had a 10 episode stretch and like those work much better as the series goes forward. So it's nice to remember that better things are coming and Mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't really weak, but I think it is like kind of a testing ground for that because yeah. as I mentioned I, it was a big deal when when they say um and now the continuation instead of the conclusion because it's like the first time you've heard like you know major Barrett computer voice say that yes it's like oh there's even more <laughs> excited. so yeah so overall very good yeah I hadn't I hadn't picked up on that and like and now the continuation as opposed to and now the conclusion yeah subtle but I like that it's pretty good my my grand would you watch my, it again i would watch it again yeah i'd watch i mean i have watched it again i'll watch it a thousand more times <laughs> <laughs> i i showed I've it to never my watching any other three episodes yeah, of TV I, ever again yeah this podcast is is done i i have no time for it anymore um no my my i, I watched like two episodes from now we're just going to be reciting these three episodes word for word and that'll be it that'll yeah, be the this, show uh, but I watched this with my my wife, who watched some of the f- episodes in the first season, and she wasn't interested. She is now a fan; like she's now way into way into Deep Space Nine, and is we're we're watching it together, and she's really really enjoying it. So, uh, I think that's really cool, and I think it speaks to the caliber of it that someone who walked in pretty much cold was like, "Oh my god, I need to see more of this." Like, and that was yeah, yeah, definitely like story. turning your family members into Trekkies is part of the project too. So. <laughs> I watched the first and the third episodes of this with my wife um, and she watched part of the second episode and went, eh, that's all right. And, and it wasn't enough to hold her. So they've got to tighten it up a little bit. <laughs> that's fair. Um, she did though. Uh, as soon as minister Jaro came on, she was like, he's the bad guy, right? Uh, and she, <laughs> I was like, I mean, I, I think so, but how do you know? She's like, I think he played uh, Nixon in Frost Nixon, so he must be the bad guy. He's, he's also Dracula, so it's oh, like, <laughs> I'm like, really telegraphs the, like, the villain. But yeah, he's a pretty big name actor, considering that they were concerned they couldn't get Lee Nellis back, and that guy was yeah. like in some soap operas. So, so, But we'll always get like, yeah, the A-lister or whatever, I guess. I guess so. weird casting choices. Star Trek, you know, you don't you don't say no to Star Trek when you get when when CBS calls. For Star you got Trek, like the yeah. the one with E Pop. I'm like, oh my god, it's E Pop. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's the show. That's it. That's the homecoming, the circle, and the siege. Uh, we did it. Woo! Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good little arc. And yep. a strong season opener, I think. The the coup arc, as that's what Memory Alpha called <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> The thing that didn't happen. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your busy day to, you know, speak with us and talk about Star oh, Trek. Oh, for sure. Uh, well, like I f- said, my pleasure. So I was <laughs> enjoyed talking about this stuff, especially all the all the little details. You can say, well, that's dumb that that happened, but it's like, no, nah, you'll, you'll love it. You yeah. talk about it for, for hours and rewatch it many times. So yeah, we really do. So you work with Albert Advantage and Format Guardian in the podcasting world. Is there anything yep. else you you do? I saw the other day on Twitter you you did some. Star Wars episode one sprites that are pretty oh, famous. Oh yes, yeah. uh, that was in about 2004. So that was very good. Uh, early internet uh, claim to fame. Um, yeah, uh, I'm also in Alberta Advantage. Uh, I think I mentioned that I um, designed stickers and other swag that we send to listeners and Patreon supporters. So definitely uh, check that out and pretty much all the graphic design aspects, um, logo, so on. So that's uh, been really great to participate in the last couple of years. Just kind of some visual identity stuff for that. We have some other stuff coming up for um, Albert Advantage or trying to get into video. Um, we have our newsletter. I do uh, columns for the newsletter. Actually, I think how that's how um, uh, came to be on the show is that I wrote a column about uh the picard series which is uh, again kind of mildly critical but using that as a lens to examine how star trek has changed over the course of its life to reflect you know tv and what view viewers expectations are um so i have a writing appearing in, in that as well so great and if people want to find you where do they where do they find you yeah, uh, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Prairie for Learner. So I think that will be in the show notes because yeah. it's uh, got, a, got a French word. So I <laughs> can spell that, spell that out loud. But uh, so Flanner is like a, a 
person who strolls around and observes things. That's a oh. term from art history and geography. So it's pretty... A thing that I'd like to see myself as is someone who just like stands around and watches things. Very good for (laughs) politics and TV shows. That's awesome. You can find our show, uh, Androids and Assets, on Instagram and Twitter at AssetDroid. You can find me uh, at EconoBoyd. And I'm Steve Droids with an S, plural. Okay. And with that, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for listening to us. And uh, if you get the opportunity, please comment, like, share, rate, uh, whatever you got to do. We really appreciate it and hope you have a great day. Live long and prosper. Bye.